and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm delighted to have a guest who was recommended by an earlier uh, guest we had on the podcast, Doug Field, OBE. And Doug, as a CEO, said, here is another CEO who I find personally very inspiring. Um, he's got an OBE as well. He's also a Deputy Lieutenant of Norfolk, a very interesting man, a uh, professor in corporate leadership at the University of East Anglia. And just many things, many strings to his bows. And, and I've already had a thoroughly good couple of chats with him. Without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Jonathan, really good to uh, hear that introduction. Uh, I, I sort of like to keep my light under a bushel a bit. But uh, yeah, I'm Andy Wood. I'm chief executive of Adnams. That's my day job. Um, but through dint of circumstance, I've found myself doing a number of other things here in Norfolk and Suffolk, which, uh, you know, are two counties which I love and, and want to see them grow and develop. No, it's fantastic. And and for those who don't know, Andy, don't know Adnams, I mean, I, I um, hear shock horror. I've given up alcohol, so it's not a big one for me, but I, I have had my moments over my military career where I've consumed my annual uh, amount in about a day. Um, but um, t- tell us about Adams. Well, I mean, it's it's a business that was formed in 1872. It has a public listing, so it has the letters PLC after its name. But it is also the majority shareholders are two families, uh, two separate families. So they control about half the shares. So it's an interesting job being CEO of Adnams because you need to deal with all the sort of uh, paraphernalia that goes with the public listing. But also I can have a conversation with two large shareholders and and talk about the direction of the company. And they've been alongside me for many years and, and have provided great stewardship during that, that time. We make beer. Um, we distill spirits, both here in Southwold. And um, I have a product to uh, fulfill your needs for beer, which is Ghost Ship 0.5, which uh, is only 0.5 of alcohol. So it won't affect you bodily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I hope you enjoy it if you get the chance to try it, Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed, Andy. That's the most kind of you. And you're also a chair of uh, the Norse Group, which is a facilities management group. And there's about 10,000 people in that. So you're always keeping your hand into what makes good leaders. And, and with that in mind, you and I were talking about, you know, who would be a couple of other CEOs that, that you have found uh, to be inspiring? One of them is in the Norse group. Would you just tell us a bit about uh, him and then uh, somebody else who's a social entrepreneur? Yes. So uh, Justin Galliford, he's CEO of the uh, Norse group, uh, a relatively young man in his first new CEO role. He was an internal appointment. He was somebody who grew up in the uh, organization. And I'm a great believer in in where there is talent, allowing that to flourish within organizations. And in what is a very complex organization, he's doing a great job. 
and he leads from a set of personal values, which which I always admire. And then the second individual I would remark on is Craig Dearden Phillips. For different reasons, Craig is a social entrepreneur, um, spent a lot of time thinking about leadership, helping businesses spin themselves out from county councils or local authorities. Uh, at the moment, he's uh, helping a business called HM Pasties in Manchester, which is uh, employing prisoners as they come out of prison, they're employed in the pasty business. And that seems a really worthwhile thing to do. He's also quite a good sportsman and he likes to do triathlons and things like that. Oh, wow. So he's a good all round sort of guy, you know. Yeah, sounds sounds a heck of a guy. Having done a few triathlons myself, um, I must admit it does take an awful lot of drive and determination to do that. Are, are you are you a man who keeps yourself fit, Andy? What do you, what I, I do, you do. I do keep myself fit. I ride a bike. I try and run, and um, I do that for health reasons rather than competitive reasons. Now, at uh, at my stage of life, it's it's you know I need to be able to show up for friends and family and the people who rely on me here in the office. Yeah, I, I think there's a a lot to be said for fitness for life. And uh, there is no doubt about it. If you ever, I was just having my hair cut earlier today, and the uh, the barber um, Scott Edgley, his his brother Ross Edgley, is yeah. the one who swam around the UK, and he just uh, attempted another uh, swimming record in a lake in uh, Italy. But mm. the lake was so warm; I think it was like thirty six degrees wow. Wow. that uh, the water temperature. It was like being in a very hot tub. Mm rather than a cool uh a cool glacial lake fed from the alps um but um we were just talking about the you know the importance of health fitness sleep uh, your blood work and just keeping a uh, a record of that. i i'm one who wears the um the the whoop strap and then i've got yeah. an aura ring as well so i, oh, I love wow. and the apple watches i'm really into recording yeah. stuff you can overdo that I, I i am conscious of it but um what do you find that you enjoy just well let's stay on the health for a moment we'll come we'll come back to the well i um i particularly enjoy um sort of peter atia i don't know if you can oh i love peter, peter atia. Atia. yeah and he just did a really good series i've got to listen to the the um scott said to me he was with the diary of a ceo um that's show, right show, and they did a, a really good double act and they did they did protein and eating sufficient and muscle yeah. And, yeah. and weight training what, what did yeah. you learn from that one absolutely so and and i've read um his book recently called um uh outlive yes i have too and um really there are two two things that you need to be doing clearly uh it's not going to guarantee longevity but uh, keep your vo2 max at a fairly high level this is the amount of oxygen you can uh absorb and, and feed into your muscles and lift weights as you get older because fragility becomes a real problem so those those were two things that i knew of anyway so my my week really is i particularly do something by um four by four by four mm-hmm. which is um i do sort of four minutes steady four minutes uh high intensity and then i do that four times mm. and that uh has the most efficacy if you look at some of the academic literature 
on uh, helping you maintain and improve your VO2 max. And I've started using kettlebells as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing that you have to do is quite a lot of zone two work. And yeah. um, I've I just done a media ride um, because the Tour of Britain is coming through Suffolk. And I rode uh, next to this young cyclist, Oliver Pratt, really lovely young man, 19 years old. And I said to him, talk me through your week. And basically it was some interval training with lots and lots of heart rate zone two work. Mm. Just building a, an endurance engine. Yeah. So that, that's a long way of answering that question. I mean, my view is I'm trying to think about health span rather than life lifespan. Yeah. You know, I want to be functional to a very old age if I can. Uh, well, it, we share a similar view. You know, I do want my health span to match my lifespan. And, and and like you, I've read a number of these books. Um, I also like like Dr. Mark Hyman and yes. his, his uh, podcast and his book. The Doctor's uh, Pharmacy. The Doctor's Pharmacy. And then he did one all about longevity, which was his mm. recent book. Um, have you have you read that one? I have. Um, yeah. The person who got me into this was um, I read a book called Finding Ultra. I don't know if you've. Read I haven't it. come across that's, that. Is it good? That's by, that's by a guy called Rich Roll. Okay. Um, he's done something like five hundred different podcasts now, and that's a story of a, a a New York lawyer who had an al alcohol problem, who turned his life around, basically, mm -hmm. and ended up doing ultra marathons. Um, you know, incredible story. Yeah. Well, I, I'm. I'm. Thank you for that. If you recommend it, I will go and I hope it listen to it because I'm dyslexic. So my my medium is to listen or to do podcasts or listen to podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it is interesting. One of the other very interesting uh, leaders we had on was uh, General James Bashel, Parachute Regiment. Wow. And James and I did airborne training and got our wings together on the same selection. And uh, he is now or recently was the Colonel Commandant of the Physical Training Corps. And uh, I said, what do you learn from them, you know, in your role? He said, well, interesting enough, I took out the the sergeant major in charge of the physical training corps, the, the senior soldier. And I said, what's your top tip for someone like me in my 60s? He said, beware inflammation. He said, yeah, mm. tell me more. He said, you know, you've had a life in airborne of running with packs, running, 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 long distances. He said, really keep it down to about 5K. Because when you start in your 60s to try and push out the distance, the ultras and things like that, which I, I've done, you know, triathlons and mm. uh, mountain marathons. I hold a world record for one of the mountain marathons in Cyprus. Wow. Um, but I did it when I was a young man. If I tried to do it now, I would get massive inflammation in my body. And inflammation is one of the problems and the mm. things that, that ages us, as you know, from all your research. Wow. And there was another book, uh, which is called... The Health Revolution by Maria Boralius. And uh, she's very interesting. She looks into all these different ways of how to reduce inflammation. Quite a good read, actually. Mm. Um, but yes, I think the thing that in all our training, lifting weights is very good for us. Doing, you know, as you say, a mixture of cycling and running, though a bit like you, I, I slightly overdid the cycling with a 500 kilometer cycle for Help for Heroes oh. in Northern France between all the battlefields. And I just had, um uh what was it um 
the vomiting bug, whatever they call it, norovirus. And so my tank was completely empty when I went out there and I did it. And, you know, but everybody else seemed to find it so much easier than me. <laughs> uh, maybe just they were fitter. I'm not sure. But there were some guys carrying huge beer bellies, uh, ex-servicemen who seemed to yeah. just storm up the hills um, regardless of of uh, how much uh, how much beer they'd consumed over the years. But um, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a nice mix. Well, look, thank you for that. I, I really yeah. really enjoyed that conversation. Let's yeah. talk about um, your own journey. I mean, not only that, but you you know your fascination with leadership, being a practical man who tries to apply the the theoretical and the reading. Just tell me a bit about the leader you are today and how you the journey you got there. Really, well, the journey is probably a path less traveled, but that's that's probably true for many, many people, um, come from a pretty unpresupposing background in southeast London in the 1960s. Um, my father was quite prescient, I think, and, and thought I need to get my two teenage sons out of southeast London and get them somewhere else where they can um, appreciate uh, things other than living in, you know, where we were at the time. And uh, we moved to Norfolk and um, had, uh, you know, I had an idyllic childhood in London and that continued in my late teens in, in Norfolk. And then I went to work for the local organisation who was employing every suitably qualified young person at that time. I didn't go to university. And um, I went to work for this organisation called Norwich Union. Mm. I think I was there in the halcyon days probably the decade before the people might have said that was the case um you know this this place had everything going for it it was a big business it had its own sporting facilities it had its own training school and um, someone saw something in me and they started to you know try and shake me into something that could um, lead others and um you know, I had a 17-year career there, and I learned a lot about myself during that period. We did a lot of leadership training. We did a lot of understanding ourselves. Um, we did something called David Kolb's Learning Styles Inventory, where I discovered that I was a very sort of activist learner, which, um, you know, more senior you get, learning by trying things out isn't probably the best way to do everything. Um, and it was from that point, you know, in my early to mid 20s, that I started to think about leadership and how I might uh, develop my style over time. Mm. And um, I guess I'm a product today of, of those early conversations. Yeah. I used to work for this wonderful lady who, you know, you always knew when you'd done something wrong because Marion would put a book on your desk that you had to read. <laughs> <laughs> and woe betide if you didn't read it. Wow. That's that's a really uh, great way of going about it. And, and these formative years, for anybody who's listening to this around the world, there's about 125 countries that leaders listen to. So it's a large slice of the world. Mm. They, you know, they'd be interested in your experiences and what worked for you, because what worked for you and what worked for me is as different as our microbiomes. And that's the mm -hmm. other thing. I don't, I, I'm sure you've done your study of that with Zoe. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it's fascinating uh, redoing my gut microbiome to see what's the good ones in there and the bad ones in there. But it is this point about 
each of us, our leadership style is unique to us. We can obviously there's, you know, we're always learning from someone else. Yeah. Uh, otherwise I wouldn't even bother to do an inspiring leadership podcast because you go like, don't worry, just do your own thing. But, but there are, there are some routes that people have trodden that help others. I still remember to this day when I was given the challenging task of taking a group of 30 staff college, very ambitious, uh, jostling and elbow uh, pushing um, colleagues to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas City, Kansas, mm. where we had to work with the Americans. And and I was the chief of staff, the, the one in charge of all these ambitious leaders. And they were, to be honest, most of them far more talented than I am. They went on to become generals and some were notorious like Colonel Tim Collins, who did his speech on the eve of the Gulf War, which appeared on the president's wall. But um the reason I mentioned this was that I, I was given a American general who'd been in the Vietnam war mm -hmm. and he sort of sat there in the corner in his sort of uh, easy chair and watched me as chief of staff around the bird table, trying to, you know, run the battle the simulated battle, which funny enough was uh, over an Iraq, Iran kind of scenario with maneuver forces. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he said, Jonathan, let me give you some advice. He said, you haven't got enough time to make all the mistakes I've made. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you where the little bastards have buried all the mines out there <laughs> um, because you don't need to blow your foot off on the ones I've blown my foot off on. However, overnight, they've come out and put some more out there, which I don't know about those ones. You're going to have to experience that yourself, but at least don't feel that you have to make the same mistakes that I made. And I thought that was just such great mentoring, and but also very generous of him. Yeah, very generous of him, and and very humble. I I think, um, as is as Robbie Williams said in his song, it's hard to be humble when you're so fucking big. Mm -hmm. Um, and and too many of those you and I were talking about too many of the senior leaders I come across are really rather pleased themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, we wouldn't put someone as fine as Richard Dannett in that bracket, who you and I know. Um, and who you are the deputy Lord Lieutenant to Pippa Dannett, who is the Lord Lieutenant after Richard was very special uh, couple there. Uh, but he has a lovely humility and humanity and a bit of a chuckling humor. Uh, I think you would have approved. He maybe didn't say Adnams, but when they, at the time he managed to save the regiment as commanding officer and the, the press then said to him, well, what are you going to do now, uh, Colonel Dannett? He said, I think I'm going to go into the officer's mess and have a glass of warm ale. <laughs> <laughs> Which you almost need to have that as a little little um, little yeah. advert to go, but it could have been it could have been an Adams one. Yeah. Um, yeah, but carry on with your story because uh, I think after 17 years and your activist style, what did you do then? Well, um I, so that led me to um supported by Norwich Union to undertake a uh, master's in business administration, wow. which, yeah. which I did. And that, that helped me become more reflective uh, about my personal style and the, the way in which I was coming across um, and, and led me then to think it would be really nice to work with an organization where I can make a, real difference that sounds cliched but um back in the mid 1990s adnams was quite a small business mm -hmm. and um they advertised for someone to lead their logistics and customer service operation and i came here 
Um, I found some very inspiring people here. My chairman, Jonathan Adams, was working here. And there were some other very inspiring uh, leaders. And, and for me, it's always been um, important to work for people that I respect. Yeah. Uh, and these were a group of people that I respected. I, I I guess I did a good job for them because I got promoted. And um, in 2006, I became managing director and then chief executive a few years later. Um, and it's been a wonderful journey that I've been on. And, and, and Adnams from being a very regional business is now distributed nationally throughout the UK and exports to 24 countries around the world. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's made a step forward and I hope I've made a contribution in its 150-year history. You know, it, it was a business that was formed in 1872. So mm. um, it's it's been around a long while. No, and, and it is interesting that you talk about, with pride, um, the, the, the history of an organisation that goes back to 1872. And... It's, it's a great bonus, but at the same time, you have to make sure it doesn't become a rod um, uh, for your back where people go, oh, no, we've done that round here, you know, no, no, yes. no, no. We did that 10 years ago. It didn't work. And and was it, um, I think it was Jack Welsh, you'll probably know from your professorship, but uh, who said when the, the speed of change on the out, on the inside is slower than the speed of change on the outside, the end is nigh. Yes. How do you manage with such a a well-respected uh, family, double family business to keep it current, keep it up to date because family businesses, and I've, I've coached in a number, I've coached CEOs in a number of family businesses, both in this country and America, where it it's quite hard because they go, Oh no, no, don't, I don't like that change. And you know, no, can't, you can't do that. Uh, it, it's a challenge for you. So it needs special type of leadership. It does. I think you have to, uh, the conversation with the family members has to be made relevant to what's going on in the outside world. So Jack Welsh was right. And, you know, the world is moving past us. So if we're not moving with it, we're going backwards, aren't we? Mm. And um, it, it really is but um, important to keep an ongoing dialogue about the needs of the business now and in the future. And with with my colleagues that I've um, worked with here, they've been very open to that. And I think they are bright individuals and um, they've seen the benefits of, of an organization that is changing and developing. I mean, this, this business 20 years ago was doing some amazing stuff in the environmental space. So it built out at Raiden, two and a half miles inland from here, uh, a state-of-the-art distribution centre made out of lime hemp block with a grass roof built seven metres down in a disused gravel workings. When we closed the doors on the place, when we first opened it in July 2006, the outside temperature was 30 degrees. Staff came in, opened the airlock doors, got the temperature down to 14 degrees, and it stayed between about 14 and 17 degrees from that date to this without any artificial heating or cooling brilliant um our brewery is a 
the facade is a Victorian tower brewery. Behind it sits one of the most uh, technologically advanced breweries in Europe. Wow. If you go to a brewing town, you'll see steam coming out of chimneys and heat being vented to the atmosphere. That's all energy being lost. We capture that heat, hold it in a holding tank and use it to boil the water that's coming through for the next brew. Fantastic. When we, when we lightweighted our glass bottle, because with the University of East Anglia, we'd done a full supply chain analysis uh, of that. Uh, and that set off something of an arms race, both in the UK, but also when I got off the plane in Oliver Tambo Airport in Johannesburg in 2010, I saw AB InBev were talking about lightweight in their bottle. So it really is a, a butterfly flutters its wings on the east coast of England and you can make a tornado happen somewhere else. So the business has always had a sort of leadership position in that space. And, you know, it's been a pleasure working with these enlightened people. Well, fantastic. And Southwold uh, yeah. is is uh, on the south coast where you have your 600 people or there and thereabouts you have them. Um, very special. Those who are listening uh, on the different uh, podcast platforms won't see on the YouTube video that you've got some lovely pictures uh, behind you. Do you want to tell us the story? I, I don't yeah. know what the story is, so, but your four pictures so you've got. are by a children's book author called Chris Wormel. And we um, did an advertising campaign. And these, these are the original lino cut designs from an advertising campaign that we did in the mid 2000s. And it was called from Beer from the Coast. So there's all sorts of images that have been done in those that also have things like Adnam's bottle tops and sails and bottles in them. And it was an iconic campaign. Yeah. I'll just correct you on the geography. We are on the east coast of England and we are about 10 miles south as the, of the most easterly point in England, which is Nest Point in Lower mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry about that one. Of course, so Norfolk and we, Suffolk yeah. is not on the south it, it, coast. Exactly. No, so I, are, not, not even my bad geography would get me there. No, we're almost as close to Amsterdam as we are to London. That's a good. That's a good little story. I love that one. And of course, the Dutch of Amsterdam and other places have had a huge influence on England's history. Not yeah. only did we have one of their kings and William of Orange and all that, but they managed to sink on much of our navy in the Thames. And the East India Company um, was superseded by the Dutch East India Company. And much of our banking and all our finance in the world was thanks to the Dutch. Yes. And um, if you come to this part of the world and in particular go to Norwich, you'll see a lot of Dutch gable end uh, buildings. And just off of here was the Battle of Seoul Bay, um, in which... Uh, uh, you know, the British fought the Dutch in, I think it was the third Anglo-Dutch war. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was a score draw. But we have a product called Broadside, which is linked to that battle that took took place. And we have a pub called the Soul Bay. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, you know, it, it, the history runs in this place. Yeah, no, I, lo I love it. I love it. Well, you know, in all your experiences, you have, have had, I'm sure, many highs and lows. But 
Um, a lot of the leaders I talk to have probably learned the most from the mistakes they made or the dark moments they had. Not that I want to get too long in the dark moments, but uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said, I, I learn so much from my mistakes, uh, a great deal of knowledge I gained from it, that indeed I think I'm going to go make a few more. But um, aside from mistakes, dark moments, what what uh, is a dark moment in your life or your business that you talk about and what did it teach you? Well, I think, you know, one needs to keep dark moments in context. I, I saw my mother fall quite ill when I was a 10-year-old. She had 15, 16 years after that. But by the time I was 26, I'd lost her. And that taught me a lot because I saw somebody suffering with with ill health and um you know that's quite profound really mm. in my in my business life there have been times when um we've had very difficult challenges here when we've been implementing change most recent of those and these are not for the faint-hearted is we chose to uh, rip out our, our old legacy IT systems and put in uh, a, a new state-of-the-art system. As these things do, that ran over time and it ran over budget and it caused lots of angst in the organization. And as a leader, you sometimes doubt yourself, are we doing the right thing here? But you have to, that's the time you have to lead. So that's that's one example of that. There have been times when uh, during during you know my tenure here, there's a lot of things that go on in pubs when you know alcohol and late at night. I remember having to go to a pub in Norwich where somebody had been killed by someone who waited in the toilet until they were cashing up, then came out, hit them with a bar stool and then took the money that was quite a dark moment so but you know it, it's part of life's rich tapestry isn't it mm. but, um that, that we hopefully gather strength as we go yeah and i'm really sorry about about your mother and that long period of illness that she had how do you think that's uh shaped you as the leader you are today did you learn anything that was positive to you from that tough time yeah yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I learned a sort of stoicism from my mother. Um, I learned uh, and, I, and I watched my father over that time as well. And I learned from some of his behaviours. Uh, he was a, uh, a person who was struggling with what, what was going on. Um, I learned how to, you know, get strength from others. I, I have a brother. I you know, we 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 stuck together through that period, but also I built long and enduring friendships, mm. and and they have been really really meaningful. And I and I'm talking about friendships from when I was ten years old, and yeah. and I'm still talking to these people and still friends with them and still meet up with them. That it's that special, and and it's a bond which uh, you'll never lose. I caught up with a friend of mine. Uh, Tony and Roger I've known since I was three and four and catching up with them again is is very special and uh, we, we just got in a couple of weeks time our 43rd reunion uh, 43 years on of our platoon at Sandhurst and I've got my my best man Errol coming from Jamaica and 
another friend, General Himalaya Tapper, coming from Nepal, and then all the rest of us, including Stuart, who used to work at Stuart Wright, who used to work at the Norwich Union uh, after his time in the army. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it, it is important to to stick together and and have some support from family and friends, yeah. particularly when you're going through such tough times. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. Well, um, it's life. Everybody has life happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think was it John Lennon said life. Life is what happens when you're making other plans. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to learn from those. And and talking of, of of learning from things, what bit of advice do you wish you had? when you started out, when you were young, 16, 18 year old, um, that you could pass on to others who are listening for for themselves or for their children? I think, you know, a, a bit like those people that you took away um, and they were all very ambitious. I was a very ambitious young man. And um, I think if someone could have said to me, it's gonna be all right, that would have been very helpful. Mm. Um, and just those, you know, saying to the sort of 15, 16, 17 year old self, it's going to be all right, would be very powerful at that time, because I'd also gone through that period with my parents. Um, so there was quite a lot of anxiety around as well. But that was expressing itself in ambition rather than in other ways. So I think that would have been really helpful for me. It's so interesting you say that, because when I think back to um my father was killed when i was two and a half you you can see but uh only those on the video can see that i have my father's naval cap and his naval sword hanging on my back wall in my study here um in uh, lincolnshire and he was a great influence on me we had a family reunion and i met in this village um a lovely man alan who was a captain in the royal navy and his father-in-law happened to be my father-in-law's chief engineer, who then had to write the air accident report about the plane crash, which killed him. Now, I was always told that my father had got his co-pilot out, which he had, Bill White, Commander Bill White lived, but that he had ejected and been sent into the tailpiece and it had killed him, and but he died instantly. I now understand from from a little extract from the air accident report that actually what happened on the Buccaneer was it was poorly manufactured. Um, a, a fire started one of the turbine engines, which is close to the fuselage, which set off the fuel tank, which blew up and the whole thing crashed with my father in it. So I'm afraid he didn't get out and it was grimmer than they wished us to know about. Um, and uh, so it's those moments that uh, have a huge impact on us. And it is interesting. I, I relate to what you've just said in the fact that I, as a young man, and for many years in my army career, was very ambitious. I, I felt I had something to prove to somebody long dead uh, that I was good enough. or to be worthy of, of their my mother's stoicism as she tried to get on in life without a husband and with three young boys under the age of nine and and i think that would have been good advice to me as well it's going to be all right jonathan just you don't need to work so hard you don't need to be so intense just just lighten up a bit and in fact our mutual friend richard Dana did say to me when i was one of his company commanders jonathan just you can lighten up a bit you know don't be so competitive with your peer group that would have been good advice if I take that. I, I sort of partly heard it, 
but I was still desperately trying to prove myself. And, and for all those who were affected by my anxiety and desire to try and um, get on and be the best and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry if you're listening. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, well, same, same, same for me, really. You know, it, 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 it was a period that we were having this difficulty with my mother. We were moving from London to Norfolk, which was a real upheaval for the family. Um, and and for me, it just expressed itself in that in that way. But but also a competitiveness with myself, as you've just said trying to prove to somebody else but who is that somebody else that um you know i'm in somehow somehow you know worthy of this or whatever mm. oh it, it just it's very interesting as you know as you and i study the profession of leadership and the the, the whole the tips and you know uh, lee and i my wife and i have, have designed psychometrics about what makes inspiring leaders and there's one particular psychometric that we use with a lot of our CEOs and their executive teams. And, and it, it, and it picks up uh, whether you're competitive or comparative or both. Mm. Now my, my wife is comparative and I'm competitive and comparative, which is like the worst of all of them. And mm. so what's hilarious is, uh, is she's got a great personal trainer and he comes here to our, our garage, which we've converted into a gym and put glass doors on the front of the, of the garage. And it's a fantastic, uh, facility to train in but but she was for some time wary of training with me because not only would I train with her but then I'd just try and add in a few more press-ups or have a slightly <laughs> heavier weight she go oh no stop it you're making really quite sad and, yeah then she goes I'm not going to play I and, and then she yeah. withdrew you know she said I'm not going to play if you're going to do that I will not do it so now I I, I have to manage it it's quite funny but, oh, but the comparative the comparative piece is is really quite interesting as well because you know, psychologically, if you get into making comparisons with others, that's kryptonite, really. You know, there's always going to be someone who can hit, lift heavier weights, run further, you know, has a more accomplished career. Yeah, it's yeah. kryptonite for, for the mind. So um, I've, I've learned over time not not to make comparisons. It, it, that is you're really onto something, which, as I'm sure those listening will have experienced it, if they either themselves or someone's done to them. I remember a very successful um, I won't mention the, the global bank, but she was in the investment part of a global bank that everybody would know. It's a household name. And and we were going through an exercise where she was walking down certain stop points. And I was asking her about, um, you know, her identity and, you know, what made her tick and this kind of stuff. Just to think about who she was now and therefore how would, what was her ambition and what would she like to become? A bit of an exercise. And I said, who, who are you? Your identity, who are you? And she said, I'm poor. And I love her as a good one because I knew she her space salary was over a million pounds mm. and her bonus had been 500,000 pounds. Mm. And I laughed and she went, no, I'm serious. I said, compared to who? She said, well, my boss, he gets one point, you know, four million and, and his bonus was 800,000. Mm. I go, get real. I said, you're, you're going to be so unhappy all your life there's always going to be somebody yeah paid more top, than you you're in the top 0.0 percent yeah. so just just whoa slow it right down just don't do that to yourself no. it's not it's not healthy but i think unwittingly until somebody else goes smell the coffee get real what are you 
why are you worrying? You know, is anybody going to die today? I mean, I, I had the CEO of three para, uh, Stuart Tootle, who, you know, he had one Victor, one posthumous Victoria Cross winner, one posthumous George you, Cross. Yeah. Head of security at Barclays for a while. You have. Well, he's, yeah. he's, he's done a podcast with me. Fascinating oh. story. And, um, uh, he indeed introduced me to his old boss, uh, Lord Richards, General uh, Sir David Richards, uh, who will also be coming on the podcast. And, but the reason I mention him is, is like he had so many people. You know, fifteen were killed, forty-five were like life-changing injuries from Iranian-made off-route IEDs that the uh, Afghans had, or from Pakistan, from the ISI, and. Um, that puts everything in perspective. And 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 so when someone's going, oh, this is really terrible, I go, has anybody died? I mean, like, like, is this a life-threatening situation? I, I know you haven't got promoted or whatever it might be, but please put it in perspective. Now, we don't want to patronize people or indeed belittle no. or minimize what's going on. But sometimes we do need a, go, a, a good dose of reality. No, and um, Edith Eager talks about this in her book, The Gift, which is, you know, one of my favorite favorite books and um she talks a lot and gabor mate talks about mm. this as well about trauma and you know trauma can happen at, uh, at all sorts of levels it can be i'm not earning as much as i think i'm worth or um you know i've lost a parent or a sibling or something uh, it doesn't matter what the trauma is it's how it affects that person that's very true very true and 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 also it's it's your value system and how your value system's been transgressed sure. and and how it affects you. Some sure. people go, hey, it's not a big thing. But talking of value systems, let's have a chat about that. Um, we'll go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. I know you teach a whole variety of different uh, models. We've just found this very useful as a way of what makes high performing leaders and teams. And and I get the sense it's really important to you your moral quotient, your integrity, your values, your beliefs, what you will and what you won't do. Mm. Uh, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said a gentleman and a lady is someone who knows what they will do and what they won't do. But um, what what did you learn when you let your quite serious values slip and how did you get back on track? Um, I, I have a very strong inner critic. Mm-hmm. I have a very strong, you know, voice in my head. And um, that starts telling me early when I'm getting close to that point. Um, and I manage to drag myself back. I have quite a framework within which that I that which I work. Um, having led this organization for a number of years as well, there's a sort of overlap of the sort of organizational values and and and, and my own um and it affects me profoundly if if i've done something that um that that steps over the line in terms of that moral sort of quotient that that one might have and i'm really quite hard on myself and um you know, I have to I, I have to you know practice a bit of loving kindness towards myself Yes, the the, compa the compassion compassion yeah. is is very important. I wonder if you ever come in your travels because you're clearly someone who loves to develop. Um, one of the people I interviewed was the managing director of the Hoffman Institute. Have you come across the Hoffman Institute? 
Tell me, tell uh, me. Look, look, look it up. So the Huffman Institute, I did one of their programs, seven days, most intense uh, kind of personal training you'll ever do. You're with 23 colleagues. Uh, it's deliberately for that number. There's three facilitators. It can broken down into eight in a, a, a subgroup. But you do all the preparation work about nine hours of it beforehand, um, some weeks beforehand, and they check whether you're suitable or not to come on it about your childhood upbringing. And because you lost your mother, and I mean, as in, it's always my brother Graham who said, you know, our brother David died two years ago of um, metastatic cancer. It was tragic at 63. So we didn't lose David. He's not out there in the garden somewhere. Why do we use these American terms, which are so loose? They should actually be much tighter. David died. Face the facts. Let's not talk about someone they've gone, we've lost them, they died. Yeah. And 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 y- your mother died, my father died way before their time. That is a factor that you have to, to yes. come to terms with, yes. which influences, as we just discussed, yes. the patterns of behavior that you and I show later in life, or indeed, certainly the period up to 13. And, and you, I think, said you were 10, when your mother started to be seriously yeah. ill, is that right? So that, 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 that's absolutely right. So that was the traumatic period for me, really. Um, by the time she died, when I was 25, 26, I was conditioned that we were going to lose her. But if you can imagine as a 10-year-old going to bed every night, thinking, am I going to see my mum in the morning? Yeah. yeah. That, was the, that was the traumatic period for mm. me. That, mm period of years now as i grew older i became conditioned to it and and was able to deal with it more but but i can remember it as vividly as 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 it happened yesterday yeah and it's no coincidence yeah and it's no coincidence if i'm right from what we spoke about before that your brother joined the army did you not he did yeah joined the navy yeah, join the Navy. Join the Navy. And, and that's not unusual either, particularly when you've got that kind of background. So going to boarding school, loss of a parent, yeah. uh, it could have been in any ways through divorce or whatever, but they yeah. often they die. Um, and um, what else? Other kind of things that affect our patterns of behavior, which are not helping us when we're older. That's right. and, and we need to be aware of them need to find pattern uh, aware of um understanding why our primary carers behaved as they did yep and then find compassion for them and compassion for ourselves the small inner child that was desperate for love and it's called negative love and and this deficit of love that you were desperate for the ongoing love of a mother or of a father or a father who was trying to cope and might have withdrawn into himself in order to get by Absolutely. And they they were doing their absolute best. And I would not say that I wasn't loved or anything, but there was this there was this other sort of story that was running in the background as well. Mm. Uh, You know, those two things overlapped at times and it was, you know, it was it was challenging. But Mm. it but it's all part of life's experience that, that shapes you to be the person that we are today, as it were. Correct. And what I found, and one of my CEO clients has just recently just come back and wrote me a very kind letter thanking me for the life-changing experience of going on the Hoffman process. Um, 
that uh, it doesn't matter what age you do it at. You know, some people have done it in their seventies and their eighties because it's a release of who you can then be. You can take off the masks that you've learned to wear. I, and certainly in the military, being an army officer, you can imagine you know, yeah. this is the way you dress. You have this blazer and you have a pair of, you know, dark blue or maroon cords or whatever, and, yeah. a, and a shirt from German street and a tie from German street. And yeah. that's how you dress when you're not in uniform because yeah. it's another uniform. So uh, there's some fascinating things. Um, which really takes me on to the, the next of the of the eight components, which is what gives your life meaning and purpose, a PQ, as I call it, purpose quotient. What, what about you, Andy? Well, I think um, there is the whole uh, family and friends that's really important to me and, and turning up for them and being present is really, really important. Um, I think professionalism and competence and being um, being known for someone who does have a set of values and and is prepared to stand up for those values has 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 been important for me o- o- over time. Mm. Um, so that's that's a sort of lot of sort of complex things there wrapped wrapped up in that. But um, you know we've got two uh, grandchildren now, a three year old and a six six year old. And and it's just the most wonderful experience. Mm. You, you know, it's cliche to say, oh, well, you can always give them back. But I think as a grandparent, you've just got more time, more experience and more patience with these young human beings. And, and that that's great. Whether they like having their grandfather around or not is a whole I'm- different I'm oh, absolutely, absolutely sure they do. We have hilarious time, Lee and I, where Riley, who is now about 14 months old, can't speak, but he has learned to say mama and and uh, daddy or dada or something. But but he certainly got into papa. And yeah. so so papa, he'll say papa, papa, wherever he sees me. Lovely. And Lovely. Lee will go, nanny, nanny, you know, and, and he'll go, <laughs> no. Papa, Papa. And she goes, I do all the work. I get up in the middle of the night to help out. And it's Papa, Papa, you know, just a guest appearance from Papa. And he's the most popular one. So that's quite, that's quite funny. And, and as we were recording, my, um, uh, my stepson very kindly drove off in his car with a uh, grandchild in there rather than interrupting our podcast. I think he's taking him for a drive to the play park. Um, we from 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 purpose we talked about health i th- i think uh, we've covered that well and it's clearly yeah. very important to you and and you've got some you know really good tips and techniques there is there an extra one you'd add about health and well-being to those listening that works well, for you yeah i mean peter i think it's peter atia talks about sleep being the swiss army knife of good health mm. and I, and i think he's right i, I I've just become more and more acutely aware when I've had a good night's sleep and when I've when I've had a poor night's sleep and how that impacts on performance the next day. There's no doubt about that. So so true. And and I I actually even also have the power nap I did before this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go and have um, 40 minutes in bed, of which normally 30 minutes is sleep. Uh, and it gives me two parts of the day. I, I have like a start all over again, round about one o'clock. Um, had some good food and uh, off I go. And it makes a huge difference, particularly because at my age, I get up a few times in the night. 
yeah. and and that tends to break up the deep and the REM sleep. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very em- I'm very envious, but at the moment I occupy uh, an office with lots of glass panels in the door, um, and lots of people walking past. So if they see me asleep, it might be a bit bit of a challenge to. Explain. No, I, I think you need to you need to have your little sleep pod, and you need to yeah. <laughs> set it and say you know sleep back in back in twenty minutes. Back in, back in twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's good. You perhaps you ought to have yeah. a sleep pod in the whole yeah. of the place. Absolutely. I think no, no, don't underestimate it. People, you know, I mean, I remember in the military days. Yeah, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I get by. I get by on four hours sleep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. have three hours sleep. Isn't it? Isn't it funny how that became so so macho? Oh, crazy! Absolutely crazy! And doing airborne training, you know, they deliberately wake you up in the, you know, when you think you're going to try and get some sleep. No, it's utter nuts, absolute madness. It's like it's like driving when drunk. You're the same equivalent. You might as well be. So they say. Yeah, um, EQ is the the next one round the compass, the inspiring leadership compass. Um, and one of the great skills I find is listening, active listening. How do you? You're a good listener. I know this from our conversations. But what's your top tip on listening well, Andy? Well, I've, you know, I've got I've got an anecdote. I was at uh, Brockley County Grammar School in a place called Lewisham, and my English teacher was Mr. Wardell. I can, you know, you can tell this had a, left a lasting impression on me. And he, because in grammar schools, they were aspiring to be something else. You know, you were called by your surname. And he said, would you've got two ears and one mouth, use them in that ratio. Mm. And that started. Um, I, I could have been quite jabberish in the past, but uh, the lady who used to put books on my desk was very good at... Um, teaching me to become much more of an active listener and um, also, you know, in meetings, actually reading the the nonverbal cues as well, really important. So it's just something I'm aware of because in in this role and in leadership roles, you know, you have the extrovert, don't you? And you have the introvert and the introvert often has most of the best ideas. Mm. Yeah, and, and how how you get those out is 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 a real challenge, and it's an art. Yeah, and and that's why I love the work of of uh, Nancy Klein. Uh, the yes. time time to think. So she Nancy trained up Lee and myself, and and we often pass on the tips from her to others. And and it's the game changer for many organisations when they start using the thinking environment, mm. and uh, everybody gets their chance to speak without having their thinking assaulted, without someone else speaking over them. And and it is the introvert Susan Kane's book in uh, Quiet, which I'm giving to my um, uh, my daughter and her husband to be uh, the weekend after next when they get married. And there's a few bits and pieces. I've got a little. I have my bag of uh, show and tell, which is part of my father the bride speech, which I did okay. for my other daughter. But there's a completely different bag of goodies. But one of them is her husband is a very thoughtful, very clever man, Cambridge. Um, but works for the FCA, but doesn't say very much. But when he speaks, it's a profoundly either a f- very funny and dry, or b very well thought through. And and yeah, the, there's been this particularly from the American influence. You know, extroverts are the kings, and the introverts are lesser. No, no, not at all. I find some of the best CEOs I work with are introverts. They've learned to be extroverted, but then at, at nature they're introverts. Um, yeah, and, and just taking that as a stage further, I think for organizational design, 
Um, we often, you know, people get promoted because they've got more and more people that report to them. And that that's the route through. And we we talked about a company and a battalion and what have you. But organizations, I think, more and more are going to have to re reward technical expertise as well. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got a, a, a legion of people, but they've got tremendous expertise in their given field. And how do you recognize that and make those people feel valued is really important for organizational design, I think. Uh, spot on. And um in the military, we realized that this was an issue. So some of the technical arms, they had a particular stream for the technical skills, gunnery, uh, signaling, uh, engineering, uh, and that they could get promoted and, and be paid, but go up a technical stream, which didn't involve so much command and leadership, but we needed their skills. And uh, we always used to slightly joke, um, but actually, it's not that funny that, that the, some people had the abbreviation N-A-N-S. I said, well, N-A-N-S? What, what's that? Not allowed near soldiers. Yeah, they're, just, <laughs> they're, just, they're just very good technically, but do not please put them in command of soldiers because they will mess up their lives and lead them miles in the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> but I think that, that's interesting. But talking about soldiery... Um, I, I was fascinated by the fact that you're a deputy Lord Lieutenant of, is it Norfolk and Suffolk or no, just Norfolk? Norfolk. Just Norfolk. Norfolk. Now, how, how did you get a, an amazing job like that, Andy? And, and well, you talk about, I, you know, I, you, you're there I, in I, your I uniform with a, looking I, I very don't, smart. I don't know. I don't know. It's, um, it's a bit of a black box, I think, Jonathan. So uh, one day uh, the previous uh, Lord Lieutenant, a fellow called Richard Dewson of, of Dewson's, you know, the build, mm -hmm. build mm -hmm. merchant, he was um, uh, Lord Lieutenant of Norfolk before Pippa Dannant. And um, a letter comes through the letterbox and you open it up and you just read it. And would you like to be a, a, a Deputy Lieutenant of, of Norfolk? Of which there are a number. So this is not, you know, there, there are many, many involved in it. But um, it's recogni recognition of a sort of civic responsibility um you know that that you've done things that have gone beyond the gone, gone beyond the gone the extra mile in yeah for, for, well, you know, congratulations policy. congratulations and also you get to like like your brother uh with his service you get to wear a very smart uniform do you have a hat do you have a hat with a plume in it <laughs> You can do, but, uh, you know, it would be very rare to see me in anything like that. <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to turn up in a in a suit and represent uh, Pippa um, and indirectly uh, represent the monarch at, 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 at events that take place in, in Norfolk. Well, very nice. And have you met the king? I have. I have. Really? I was... Um, uh, for the period uh, 2014 to 2016, I was the then Prince of Wales ambassador for responsible business in the east of England. Yeah. Wow. And and was that interesting? It was very interesting. Um, clearly, um, I got to meet uh, the now King, then Prince of Wales, on a number of occasions. Um, and it uh, enabled me to convene one or two things to further 
responsible business and responsible capitalism in this part of the world in his name. Uh, and it was really good. It mm. was really good. And particularly in the sort of environmental space, we were able to do things because that's a, a passion of his majesty. Yeah, no, I think he does a, a fantastic job. Let's um, uh, take another one, um, CQ, which is sort of uh, teams and groups, cultural collective, cognitive intelligence. How do you get on with people who are very different from you? I mean, in your roles or different roles, you're going to meet people who are very different from you. What's your top tip you'd give? Absolutely. Uh, my top tip is to work hard to try and look at the world through their lens because they are coming at problems and approaching things. And it's about questioning. It's about asking, why do you see the world in that way? What is what is making you hold that opinion? Um, that, that would be my top tip. Try and mm. put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like that one. And resilience is the next one. Um, you know, how have you picked yourself up in time of adversity? I'm sure you've had... Many yeah. an occasion. Yeah. Um, Your best tip on that? Well, my best tip is not to consume too much of my own product <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at such times. Um, but it has been to take myself away. So going out on the bike, um, trying to do something very, very different, Um going for a run it it absolutely puts the world into a different place and and the mind um the the mind moves to a to a different place i also use meditation quite mm. quite a bit and and that's very good to um clear the mind really mm. so that that's what i try to do and i find when i've been successful in clearing the mind um, ideas for dealing with the problem then come up because the mind is just not cluttered with all the noise of the problem that you're dealing with. Yeah, I, I love that one. Um, it, it's so true. And the Japanese talk about forest bathing where you walk in the they woods. Do. And uh, excuse me. Um, and, and I'm uh, going away to do an event for a CEO and his team. We've got a few of them uh, the latter part of this year around the world. But um, off-sites are, are very useful. And what I mix into the off-sites that I do with the executive team and the CEO is that they pair up and they go out into the forest around the lovely venue that we're going to be in the, in this particular case, we're going to be in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Okay. Uh, but it's got stunning settings and paths and footpaths. And, and just to slowly amble around on a walk with a colleague, one of you talking and the other one really listening well. And when you come back, that you have to summarize what you heard the other colleagues say so that you don't take notes. You just have to really listen well. Mm. Um, brand. Uh, uh, reputation, image, and impact is the the next one. The BQ, the penultimate one. Um, I imagine, particularly with you teaching leadership, that you are hopefully a fan of three hundred and sixty feedback rather than living in a happy illusion that you're wonderful in every sense. Um, what have you learnt from? If there was one thing that you've learnt from the value of three hundred and sixty feedback, what what is it you've learnt? Um, I think that you can't communicate enough that you often think you've communicated clearly and succinctly 
but just of just as you were saying and you were describing in that walk in the forest and 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 listening intently people have often got other things going on in their minds uh so i think you can't communicate enough really that 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 was one of the first things i would take away um the second is not to be too managerial mm-hmm. actually um allow some of your own vulnerabilities to come through yeah i think that's important that is the thing time and again that i weave into the offsites because there the may be low levels of trust and the leaders feel they have to put the mask on and be invulnerable and be the smartest man in the room, the cleverest woman, the, whatever it might be. And, and actually where they gain the greatest respect is where they say things like, do you know what? I don't know, but let's find out. What do you think? Yeah. And, and as soon as someone comes with a problem to use dialogue where you go, how about we go two minutes each way? You begin, let me ask you your own question back. What do you think you should do about this? And then at least you can get up to speed with what they're talking about. Because often a leader blurts out an answer for somebody, but they don't know what the person's been working on for the last six weeks. And when they actually then explain what they think they should do, you go, oh, oh, it's a completely different angle. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. And, but I think that takes some experience and some confidence hmm. to be able to do that and own up to not having all the answers mm-hmm. and to recognise that the leader doesn't have the franchise on good ideas. Yeah, yeah, uh, spot on. Um, but you have to, you, 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 you kind of need to create a trusting environment for that to be able to happen. And I think trust is really important in this oh, equation as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and trust equals speed times cost, as yeah. C- Covey said. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, top tip on legacy: how, how would you encourage people to to work out what their legacy should be? I, I, I'm a bit. I, I'm not too worried about it, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Um, I think you are then you are wandering into the realms of ego. I think it's for others to decide what what one's legacy is. Um, I'm a great believer that um, organisations are amoeba-like. When someone leaves, there's a hole for a few moments, but then it closes over and the, and the, and the train moves on. So um, I'd like to think I'm fairly low ego, so therefore... What my legacy is, I think that's for others to decide, Jonathan. To be nice, nice touch. I like that one. Um, uh, the uh, last three questions about executive teams and your favorite book, and then the top tip. Um, if you were to give a tip to people about dealing with a toxic individual or a toxic team, in a nutshell, what would be your top tip? Um, I think you have got to be seen to have. Clarity, consistency, and a calmness when dealing with such people. And you've got to make sure you're fair to all. Mm-hmm. I see in organizations and have seen in organizations managers, leaders, 
directors shy away from dealing with difficult people. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've got in the you know the 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 stories of whistleblowing. You know, as we're doing this podcast, there's been this story of this nurse, and and you know, organisations have got to be seen to deal with people who are not doing the right thing, yeah. and that is that is one of the ultimate roles of the leader. Brilliant. No, I completely agree. Thank you. Great, great uh, advice. Um, penultimate question, your favourite book and why people should read it or listen to it. So I first came across Edith Eager. I think it would have been on uh, in a conversation with Rongan Chatterjee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she has written a number of books, one uh, being called The Gift. And uh, the sub subtext of that is 12 ways, 21 ways to save your life, I think. This is a 93-year-old, retrained as a psychologist when she got to America, Holocaust survivor, saw her um, mother and father taken off to um, the gas chamber, um, was made to dance for one of the camp commandants. I mean, a horrible story, but a wonderful story in the power of her mind and framing things and seeing the world differently. And I would recommend it. It's not a very long read. And, you know, it's almost a book that you can read at one sitting. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So, um, Andy, if you'd uh, end with your top tip, please just introduce yourself, talk about the role you have and what your top tip is. So I'm I'm Andy Wood. I'm Chief Executive of Adnams, uh, a brewery in, in, in Suffolk in the UK. Um, my uh, top tip, uh, and when I'm in meetings, there's often teacups on the table, and it's teacup, which is think clearly under pressure and find tools and techniques that can enable you to do that. Fantastic. Well, look, Andy, we're very lucky to have had you on this podcast. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm very grateful uh, for the advice that uh, Doug Field said. Need to have him. He's my recommended guest. He was spot on. And you clearly love the topic as well as the practice of leadership. So thank you very much indeed. Jonathan, it's an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.